Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm your host. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy, and I help spiritual adventurers remember who they are and why they're here so they can up-level with ease. I am so excited about this week's episode. It's with Andrea Owen, and Andrea is like the first coach that I really resonated with. I started my certification journey in 2012, and I found Andrea on social media. I have no idea how, but she was telling it like it is. She's a little bit sassy, totally hilarious, totally down to earth. I loved the words she used. I loved, loved, loved her energy. Everything she did and said resonated with me so much. And I was like, all right, that's the kind of coach I want to be. And so getting to have Andrea on the Find Your Awesome podcast is a little bit of a rock star moment for me. I adore her. Big fan. And before I tell you a little bit more about her, a couple orders of business, really only one. And that is that the Shed Your Shit and Find Your Flow 2020 experience is starting wicked soon. We start out with six group coaching sessions. We start on November 14th. We use those sessions to shed all of the stuff, all of the conditioning, all of the stories that are holding us back, are dulling our sparkle, are weighing us down so that when we meet for retreat on Siesta Key, Florida, in beautiful Sarasota, on the beach, in a gorgeous house with a private pool, January 10th through 13th. So then we can step fully in to flow. So you guys, this opportunity starts really soon. I really, really, really want you to join us. I'm so excited for the magic we're going to create. You can learn all about it at kelseyabbott.com slash findyourflow. Now, Andrea, life coach, author, hellraiser, Andrea Owen is passionate about empowering women to value themselves and fiercely love who they are. Are you seeing why I love this chick? She helps high achieving women let go of perfectionism, control and isolation, and choosing courage and confidence instead. She is the author of How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness, and 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, BS Free Wisdom to Ignite Your Inner Badass and Live the Life You Deserve. And without further ado... Let's get into this conversation. And for you, my friends, please go forth and be awesome. So we're going to talk about your return to tennis after, what, 30 years? 30 year break. What's it like? Uh, well, it's loaded because, and, and, and in all fairness, I played, I don't know, maybe 10 times in those 30 years, like, you know, anybody that would play with me and what, what, how it worked was I, I played as a child. I mean, as young as three years old, there's pictures of me on the tennis court. My parents were tennis fanatics. Their whole social life revolved around tennis. I learned how to ride a bike on the courts. I did court cartwheels on the lines of the courts. Um, endless pictures of, of my childhood on the tennis courts. And then 
I took lessons. My dad was my coach a lot of the time. And then probably around 12, when it just got annoying that my dad was my coach, he paid for private lessons for me. And so it was the summer between eighth and ninth grade. I was going into my freshman year of high school and they had tennis team tryouts. And my dad dropped me off at the courts and I was standing there looking through the chain link fence. I, I totally remember it. And I remember watching these girls play and some of them were better than me. And, you know, I was probably better than some of them, but I was probably somewhere in the middle. And I called my dad to come pick me up because I just was riddled with anxiety and fear of, oh, I have to, I never played in tournaments or anything. And that thought of like, oh, now I need to play to possibly win. And what if I let down my teammates? What if I let down my coach? What if I lose in front of my parents? It was, it was so overwhelming. And looking back on it, it was perfectionism and anxiety and it was beyond competitiveness. It was just that massive fear of failure. And I quit. And I don't even remember what I told my dad. And I, I kind of wish they would have pushed me and said like, no, <laughs> this is what you do. You're going to go and do this, like, which I probably would do to my children. Like, At least just try. And if it's the worst thing in the world, then we'll let you quit. But they let me quit. And it was one of the biggest regrets of my life. And I, I, like years later, I would look through my high school yearbook and see the pictures of the girls' tennis team and feel like I should have been there. But instead, I was a cheerleader. Nothing against cheerleading, but it was safer. It was a lot safer. And, and my dad continued to play and he got his USPTA tennis pro license and then taught at high schools. And, and it just was, it was, it broke my heart. And I, I think when I tell the story, sometimes, I think it's kind of dumb, but it just, it was, it held so much emotion for me and so much charge and weight. And then in 2016, I lost my dad. And when he died and we were going through his stuff, my stepmom said, I think you should have his rackets. And I was like, of course, <laughs> if you hadn't told me that I probably would have taken him anyway, but I, I have, it's actually behind me. I have an old Wilson racket, wooden racket that hung in our house forever that I took and I took his, his really great rackets. And so now it's 2019 and we live We've moved, uh, we've lived in North Carolina for several years. We just joined a, a swim and tennis club and my husband and I have played a handful of times and I kept going back to the website and, and I would see, you know, like the, the leagues and the women's league. And so I, I went to a beginner's night because that's safe. And the tennis coach was like, you should probably come, you know, we have like division one through four women's. And I was like, no, <laughs> just like my 14 year old self just came back in full force. And I was so afraid. I did Instagram stories about it. I was so, I was like considering hiding behind the trees. I'm not kidding you, Kelsey. Like I was like, maybe I should just go look and just check it out. Just to, just to, and I'm having this whole back and forth conversation with myself in the car on the way, considering going home. And I, I tell you so many details of this story because I just, this kind of stuff stays with you. Like it really does. And, and then it was fine and they were great. So I got over that fear and that hurdle. And then it came time to actually play like matches against other, <laughs> that was even worse. I had, I thought I was going to have diarrhea. Like <laughs> I was so scared. And again, in the car thinking, why did I do this? I should just go to clinics, like just recreationally. Why do I have to like compete? I'm 44 years old at this point and, and just the back and forth. And so I went 
And I just kept breathing. And I told a couple of my, I told my partner, I'm like, this is really emotional. And I just, I felt like it was unfinished business that I needed to complete. And I was crying afterwards and it was, it was amazing. It was, it felt, it, it felt like I had closed a circle and that's, I'm, you know, I'm still in my, you can't see me right now, but I'm still in my, my tennis gear. I just got back today and it is, all I want to do is play tennis now. Like that's all I want to do. It makes me so incredibly happy. I have neglected <laughs> my actual job so much because I play like four times a week. I love it. And it kind of inspiring me to get back to tennis. Cause I, I feel when you describe your 14 year old self, Oh, my 14 year old self is like, I see you. I like, I play tennis. I was never into the tournament. So I did the tournaments cause that's what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But, um, I never gave it the attention that like I was more interested in swimming. Okay. So I just practice tennis a couple times a week, and yeah, currently the idea of going and hitting a ball sounds really fun. It's so fun, but the idea of like actually playing a match is like, oh, I don't know. It's it's so interesting, like what your brain goes through, and I don't know about you or anyone listening, but I'm the type of person where so we we have a rather small team, and so it's division one through four, one is the best, and I'm on division three right now. We don't have enough players for division two. So you have to jump from D3 to D1. And when they told me that, they're like, we don't have a D2. You know, we just have D1 and D3. And my immediate thought was, well, then I'm just going to have to be good enough to, to jump to D1. Like that immediately was my goal. And, and that's always, I've always thought like that. And I think it's a really great thing to have, you know, when, you know, even when I sign a contract, when I'm having a book published and, and they're like, well, if you, you know, you need to sell X amount of books in in 12 months instead of 18 to get the bonus. I tried to get them, you know, to do 18 and, you know, we ha- you have to c- cover it in 12 months. And my thought is, okay, well then I'll just do it in 12 months. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where I'm pleased with myself that I have that kind of um, just drive in me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come with the fear along the journey of holy shit. This is going to be so scary. And I don't know if I'm going to live through it. Like I still have that primal, like, oh no, no, don't take any more steps. You're going to die type of thing. Like that's how unsafe it feels in moments. And I'm just glad I have the tools now to talk myself through it. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is basically like you're making your way through fear every Mm -hmm. damn day. Every day. Yes. The difference now, you know, from now versus who I was 15 years ago is that I accepted fear front and center as the winner. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it doesn't mean that it comes on any less than it used to. It still does all the time coming at me like tennis balls flying at me from the ball machine. The only difference is, is that I see it way faster than I did before. And I recognize it for what it is. And I don't make myself wrong for having it. I do a little bit, like I still have the voice every once in a while that says, you know, you should be over this, but it's, it really is this back and forth that I have. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'm human. This is fine. It is what it is. And it's, it's, I think if someone could catch a glimpse of what's going on in my head, I don't think they would think it was funny. I think they would be like, oh yeah, that's me too. (laughs) Again, the difference is now is that I don't let fear win. I still have the street fight, but at the end, I'm the one that wins because I go for it. That doesn't mean I succeed every time. It doesn't at all. Like I still have like fall down on my face moments, 
But now I know that I'm resilient enough to be able to get back up, even if I get my ass kicked out there. Yeah. Oh, I, it makes me think of um, Elizabeth Gilbert's description of fear. Like Mm -hmm. fear is coming along for the road trip, but you're sitting in the backseat and you can't touch the radio. Right. Yeah. You have no say in all of that. Yeah. It's funny. I, she ta- is that what she talks about that in Big Magic? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I, I've listened to that a long time ago and then I re-listened to it lately. And I did the exercise that she talks about in there about writing a letter to fear before you embark. You can do it anytime, mm-hmm. but especially if you're about to embark on a big creative project. And I did that recently and it was incredibly therapeutic. So I encourage everyone to do it and you know listen to that book and, and do the exercise where you write a letter to fear. So what did you, what creative project were you working on? So it's my third book and that's been a street fight. (laughs) What's the difference between books one, two, and three? It's hard for me to remember. My my best friend, Amy, she remembers because I feel like this is new and I'm like, why is this book so hard? Why is this why am I making it so difficult? She was like, uh, this is the exact same process you've been through both times. And I don't remember though. Maybe it's, I think it's kind of like having a baby. Like you don't really remember how difficult and painful it is until you're in it again. I mean, or else we wouldn't have multiple children Same, we wouldn't write multiple books. It's, I think each book has asked something different of me. And each time it's, I've definitely, and I think this is a lot of authors, especially people who write self-help, I've written what I need to write selfishly for my own process. Not necessarily, I mean, I guess it is sort of like I'm writing the book I need to hear, that too, but it definitely is the, it's not just the finished product, it's the process itself is what I need to go through. And this one, you know, coming off the heels of where we are culturally, socially, politically, this book has been, well, I guess I'll start from the beginning. My first book, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, was was kind of an overview, like a self-help, um, kind of like cheerleadery, like you can do it, motivational, inspirational type of book. Covered a lot of different topics. My second book, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, was uh, I'm also trained in shame work. And so it was very much tied to that and also tied to my own deep dive in shame. And now this book is sort of like I've come up for air. And I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> and, and it's about that. It's about, it's, it's part rally cry, part call to arms, part here's what we need to do to, it's my opinion that women's empowerment is an act of rebellion. And that's really the basis of it as I go through my own as well. Are you feeling that too? Like, I feel like there's a lot of women in that, that that's the feminine energy right now. It comes Mm -hmm. with like, there's a little bit of anger. There's a little bit of like fire and pissiness right now of like, mm -mm. Mm -hmm. no, I don't think there's a little bit. I think there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot. And there's like the part of me that wants to say there's a little bit as to not make people uncomfortable. But I mean, in my, I wrote my introduction and I was agonizing over the introduction because it's, it's for my proposal. My, my literary agent wanted it in my proposal. And an introduction is really important because it, it really is one of the most important parts of the book because it's a hook. Like how many times do you 
open up and read the introduction in a book when you're at the bookstore or on Amazon. I, I read the table of contents. And if I can, I read the introduction. And it, it had so much weight to it. And I could not for the life of me figure out how I wanted to, what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And it was just last weekend I sat down and I was like, you know what? This has been born from a place of anger. So I'm going to tell people that from the get-go. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and be like, this is a self-help book about that would be, that was the voice that was telling me, you know, it's the voice that was saying, anger doesn't look good on you. It doesn't sell books. You're going to scare people and make them uncomfortable. Like that's the point of the whole book (laughs) is that we do that. So I was like, how can I not just say what's really, really there? And I sent it to my agent. And and this is after I had sent her two sample chapters that she tore apart and was like, of course, I'm, I'm being dramatic about it, but basically was like, try again. And then when I sent her the introduction, I said, this is my first draft. And she said, this is your voice. This is what we need. Mm. And this is what this book needs. Um, with a few edits here and there, of course, but that's really, I mean, I don't really know what the point of my, I forgot even what you asked me, but it's the whole process that I'm going through personally and professionally. Yeah. I totally have no idea what I asked you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You just asked me about the book. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but I'm really excited right now and I'm really, I feel there's something different, right? We can hear the difference in our tone and our truthiness. When we speak from that like fire in our heart, it just, that's flow. It's a different type of flow than we're used to seeing out in the world. It's different than coming from a place of anger and blame. That's what I'm, that's not what this book is. And I think that that's one of the points of my book is like, let's stop one of the chapters is like, let's stop being a part of the problem by just talking about the problem in circles of women. Let's talk about the solution and what that might look like from a place of active action and change rather than just complaining. Yeah. What's up with that? I I was listening to something today about climate change and it was a podcast and the guest was saying that we have millions of ways that we say what's wrong with the climate and what humans are doing and we're talking about changes we can make like empowered like decisions we can make there's like no information other than turn the lights out recycle Recycle. (laughs) it's like culturally we like to live in the blame and complain mode oh yeah and i think it's just kind of a human thing to do we feel like we're taking action if we are informed and talking about it in our circles. And I think for, for a lot of people, perhaps myself included, like we feel like it makes us sound smart if we know what's going on, like all the problems of the world. It gives us something to talk about. And yeah, it, it is a whole different story when you're talking about actually doing something about it. Yeah. Okay. So is this book, is it actually a self-help book? Mm-hmm. It is. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, memoir is coming later, but, but it is. And my books are, you know, when, when I was writing my second book, my dad died in the middle of me writing it. So of course it was going to be personal and, and I had to go back into one chapter in particular and, and write about it. And um, this book is, there's one story that I tell that my agent wanted me to tell that I wasn't, I thought I would save it for my memoir. That's about like actually taking action and not complaining about something really big that I put in there. So it is self-help with 
stories and anecdotes, not just from me, but from my clients too. What's the writing process like for you? Does this stuff just like spill out of you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Some days, you know, speaking of big magic, Elizabeth Gilbert was talking about that, like that state of flow where you just feel like you don't even know where the words are coming from and it just is beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of that paragraph, she goes, and this is, this happens to me very, very rarely. And I was like, thank God, because I thought she was going to say that's her normal state. Writing process, it's definitely gotten more organized as I've, now I'm on my third book, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily easier. I mean, in some ways being more organized does make it easier for you. But what happens for me is the pressure of upping the ante and, you know, doing better than my last project is very much there. So now the writing process for me is really getting past that and getting past the voices in my head that have so much to say about me as a writer. And I I don't have an MFA. I don't have... I mean, I don't even have a master's degree in English. Like I I went to school for exercise physiology. So, you know, I hear those voices like, who are you to write? Like how could, was it a fluke that those books have sold so many copies? Like, um, so that's really what a lot of my writing process looks like today. It might look different, you know, four months from now. I don't know. Um, Okay. So many things came up as you were saying that. I don't know if you're asking more logistics or more emotional because I'm always going to err on the side of emotional answers. I always want to hear the emotional. I'm I'm really not into logistics at all ever. Ask anyone who's ever talked about Strategy and logistics is going to vary greatly when it comes to creativity. Like what works for one person will not work for another. So I don't even like to tell people because then they think that's the right way. And I'm like, no, you have to find what works for you. I remember hearing that Victor Hugo to write Hunchback of Notre Dame, I believe. I believe he wrote mm-hmm. that. Um, he had somebody come and take all his clothes away for a month. And so all he had was a bathrobe. And he was like, now I can't leave my house. And this is, I'll sit and write. And it worked for him. God, that is like creative drama. I, I love it. <laughs> the, the other kind, I'm like, wow. <laughs> Well, that's this equivalent to our phones now. And I've had to delete Facebook and Instagram from my phone because every time I pause, you know, if I'm, I don't know what to write next, I will pick up my phone and be like, oh, I wonder if anybody PM'd me on Instagram. (laughs) It's it's terrible. So yeah, I I get, I I see you, Victor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Clothes, phone. Whatever. I thought you were gonna say he writes naked. I was like, okay. No, I think he. I think it was a bathrobe. Yeah, a dressing gown. Mm-hmm. Not really sure what the difference is. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, how did you? We kind of started in the middle of your story. How did you get into coaching anyway? From that degree in exercise physiology, physiology mm-hmm. to coaching to all these. Well, jobs. actually, yeah. The the degree in exercise physiology happened in the middle of all of that actually. And I was, I was going to go in a direction with coaching that I ended up not going in. So in 2003, which was like a lifetime ago, I remember sitting, God, it might've been in like, Oh, two even. I remember sitting at our desktop computer and I was with my ex, he was my fiance at the time. And 
seeing that life, life coaching was a thing. And there was maybe like two life coaches in the world at the time. One of them was Steve Mitten, who is um, part of my alma mater at the Coaches Training Institute. And I was like, a life coach. That's because I had considered going into being a licensed therapist and it just didn't feel right. So I thought that I would be so good at that. I am, you know, energetic and you know, have this big personality. I thought it would be something that I could do. I can motivate people to live their best life. And then I remember, so I was 20, you know, mid twenties at the time. And I remember saying to him, but I think to be a great life coach, you would have to have some life experience. And I don't have a whole lot of life experience. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, he was my husband. We'd been married for a couple of years at that point, And we were talking about conceiving our first child. We wanted to have two or three kids together. He had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant instead of me. And then we split up and that was God awful. It was horrible. He and I had been together for 13 years at that point. So his family was my family. Um, it was brutal. And I started dating someone right away. I had no business dating at the time. This person whom I thought was Mr. Right turned out to be a complete con artist. He lied about having cancer to cover up his drug addiction conned me out of money, lied about everything. Um, I found myself, I had moved, I had broken the lease of my apartment, quit my job because he and I were going to move away together. And I was pregnant with his child. And then everything came out all, you know, that he was an addict. I kind of suspected that he was an addict, but I really truly thought that he had cancer. Like he played me. The lengths that he went to to lie about this and make it seem legit were just astounding. And I was not the, I found out I was not the first person that he had done this to. He had done this to other women. And I had to make a decision, you know, like, I'm like, okay. And I was 31 at the time. It's not like I was the 17 year old girl who didn't have hardly any resources. I thought, well, now is a good a time as ever to go to life coaching school, which I probably should have waited a minute. I went to the first weekend I was newly pregnant and then decided to wait because I, I had some like therapy to go to and, and needed to have this baby. So I had the baby, finished my bachelor's degree and my coach training, I, which I don't recommend having. And then I had another baby because <laughs> I met Jason, who's my current husband and kind of in the, all that as well. And my first niche was, sort, was fitness because I was also a certified personal trainer. I worked for the American Council on Exercise and I worked at their corporate office in San Diego. And then I worked on the gym floors as well and was going to do both. But back then coaching was so new, people didn't, people generally speaking, didn't know what it was. And they were like, I just, I just want you to help me lose weight <laughs> or like get fit for this thing. Like, I don't understand. I don't want to talk about my life. So it was, they were very separate at the time. That's changed now that it's been 10 years. So I dropped the whole fitness aspect. I let my, I let my certification, my personal training certification expire and just went whole hog into, into this and kind of let it take me where it was meant to take me. Yeah. And it sounds like, first of all, you were like, I need some life experience. So you went and got some. The universe, the universe is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> I call it sassy as fuck. Sense of humor. That's what I say. Yes. Yeah. It, it dropped it in my lap. That's for sure. I mean, it could have been a little bit less like dramatic, but <laughs> nonetheless, yes, I got all my life experience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the universe wants to make very certain that we really see it. Yeah. And honestly, my intuition told me when I was 26 years old, 
don't marry him. My intuition told me when I was 19 to break up with him and I didn't. I met a great guy when I was 22 and broke up with my boyfriend, you know, my first husband to date this other great guy and ended up breaking up with this great guy because my ex came, you know, literally begging on his hands and knees for me to come back to him. And, and I knew it was the wrong choice. I knew it was the wrong choice and I did it anyway and ended up marrying him. And I truly think the universe was like, listen, if you're not going to do what we keep telling you to do here. So they dropped this beautiful blonde woman who was our neighbor and she got involved with my husband and he fell in love with her. He legitimately fell in love with her. And that was it. Mm. We're going to take this beautiful blonde woman and put her right next to. With a lower back tattoo and everything. (laughs) It was 2006. It was the thing. But yeah. (laughs) So do you listen to your intuition more now? Yes. Even though a lot of times it's things. I So about a year ago, my husband and my kids and I were about to walk into this Mexican restaurant that we've never gone to before. And as soon as we walked in the door, I got this overwhelming feeling that we needed to leave. And we did. And he was like, did you see someone in there that you didn't want to see? Like, he was like, this is so weird. Like, why? So I even do it in moments like that. I was like, I don't know. I don't know if somebody was going to get sick if we ate there. I don't know if something bad was going to happen. There was fight was going to break out or what. But I just, so I listen as much as I can. And I still get bit in the ass sometimes, but yes, I do. And are your kids used to it? Um, they don't, it doesn't really affect them all that much, but I'm open about what that is. Yes. I can imagine if, if as a kid I knew, I don't even know if I knew the word intuition, Yeah. but if I knew that and I knew like, that's what you're supposed to listen to, that's what, that's the truth. Oh, I think that would have been a really great thing to know as a teenager. Yeah. I wonder if we hear it even more when we're children because we're so much more open to things like that. And we don't quite yet have all of the second guessing and collateral thoughts that are Mm -hmm. happening when we're small. I know um, I'm... I'm almost 100% positive that I'm clairaudient. I hear voices that are not my thoughts and they're not like weird voices telling me to kill people, which is nice. But um, I hear someone calling my name often and I heard it a lot more when I was a kid. And I told my mom when I was little, I was like, I hear a voice calling my name. What is that? And she didn't think I was weird or anything like that. She told me it was God. Um, But yeah, I do. I think if kids learned how to hone that more, they might make better choices. I yeah. Know. I always had an, a knowing. And I remember telling my parents there were, there were friends of theirs that I didn't, I would say that they were mean, which looking back now, I'm able to be like, oh, I didn't like their energy. Yeah. Their energy didn't feel good to me because my parents would kind of be like, what'd they say? And I'd be like, I, I just, I don't want to be there. Yeah. I don't want to be in this room anymore. Yeah. And maybe it was just a mismatch of energy because I have felt that with people and it's, I don't make anyone wrong for it, but it's just, sometimes you just don't have chemistry with people. And sometimes you have immense amounts of chemistry with people and that's where, how you have best friends and intimate partners. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely, to this day, certainly have moments where I'm like, oh, I just don't like that person's energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same, same. I'm just going to walk away from that. <laughs> Okay. So, so we've gotten you 
through coaching school, what was it like deciding to write your first book? Was that like, were you always, did you always think you were going to write books? I didn't always think that I was going to, I knew I always wanted to. So I was a voracious reader as a child and I'm not talking like little woman and like literary classics. I was, I read the Sweet Valley High series, like it was going out of style. I still have them all. And I remember Francine Pascal was the first female author that I ever knew of. And I just thought, what a cool job. She like stays home and just types on her typewriter and like, that's a thing. And I wrote short stories as a kid. And then when I entered my teen years, of course, I wrote angsty poetry about my boyfriend and, and things like that, breaking my heart and, and all the things that we feel as teenagers. And then in my 20s, I stopped writing. I think, you know, it was as probably many of us enter our 20s, it was a time where I sort of lost myself and made bad choices and which again, I think is kind of <laughs> a good thing for many of us to make terrible choices in our 20s so we can reflect on them. And I picked it back up after I went through all of the shit that happened to me after the fake cancer guy and started <laughs> writing. That's what I call him. You know, I'm not going to use his real first name, Mr. Fake Cancer, sometimes if I'm feeling really generous. And I, that's, this was in 2007, 2008 when blogging was starting to get really big. And so I started a blog, live your ideal life blogspot.com. Isn't that so very life coachy? <laughs> and started writing and lo and behold, people started reading it. I remember because this was also like the, the birth of Twitter as well. People start, I was writing a lot about my eating disorder and like kind of coming out of that. And also at that time, it was, it was also learning what EDNOS is, eating disorder not otherwise specified because I had been in such denial about how sick I really was. And writing about it and realizing that there was I think when you're in an addiction like that, your world gets very small. And with the birth of the internet and social media, I think for so many of us, it was like, oh my God, there's other people out there who struggle just like I do. And then people who are reading my work said the same thing. Like, oh, she's, and, and I've always had this ability to write, or what I've been told is to write what people are feeling that they can't quite articulate yet. And I just ran with it and kept going and, and wrote about everything. So when I got sober, I got sober in 2011 and then gosh, maybe two months after that, I sat up in bed one day and said out loud, I'm going to write a book. And I didn't know what it was going to be about. I had a feeling it was probably going to be self-help to help my career. I just decided I was going to do it. Did getting sober. And I want to talk about the story behind that, but did getting sober, um, did it, change your Claire audience skills? Oh, that's a good question. I never been asked that before. I think so. And, and I wasn't, um, I don't ever remember that whole time I was deep in my addictions. I think I just brushed all that aside and I, I just didn't, I, I wasn't as open to it as I am now. And when I do hear it now, I pause and listen. Whereas before I just was like, well, that's weird. I don't know what that was, but yeah, that's probably it. All right. So now tell us, please, how'd you get sober? Why'd you get sober? What was going on? I have what's considered a high bottom. So in other words, I, I really, I know that my rock bottom was 
laying in the fetal position on the floor in my apartment after I had just found out that my addict boyfriend, the father of my child, had cheated on me in rehab. And it just kept getting, it just kept getting worse. And I was, I was laying on the floor and on the phone with my sister, just saying over and over again, like, I can't believe this is happening again. I can't believe this is happening again. And that truly was my rock bottom, like having to pick myself up. I was what, eight weeks pregnant, nine weeks pregnant at the time and figure out what I was going to do, where I was going to live, how I was going to make a living, et cetera. So when I healed from that, you know, when I got pregnant, I really worked hard on releasing my codependence and my eating disorder. And I was also a pretty fierce love addict. So for those people that aren't familiar with it, love addicts, we're always codependent. Like every love addict is codependent, but not all codependents are love addicts. And we get our high through chasing relationships, basically. Um, men were my drug. And for me, it looked, the cycle was, I would, um, I would just, I, I hated my life because I was in a relationship that I knew was terrible for me and I was too afraid to leave him. And so I would go out with all my girlfriends and I'd meet, you know, hook up with some hot guy and feel relief for maybe a couple of hours. And then the next morning feel such incredible amounts of shame for what I had done and feel like the, a terrible person. And then the whole cycle would start over again. And so this went on for years. Um, he and I both were cheating on each other and it was sort of this unsaid, really gross thing that happened. And I quit when PS to, to redeem myself. In my defense, I did quit once we got engaged and got married. He, on the other hand, did not. And so I healed from the love addiction, the codependence, the eating disorder. And then really after the birth of my second child, my daughter is when my drinking really started to pick up speed. So I had a brand new business, brand new business, two babies. I was still in the grief process of my, my losing my marriage and mostly losing my family and not really acknowledging and honoring how deeply that had affected me. It was trauma is what it was. And I was poo-pooing it when my therapist would talk about it. And it started out just, you know, a couple of glasses of wine a night. And then it was like a couple of glasses of wine every night. And then it jumped up. I remember the first time I drank an entire bottle of wine by myself, like on a Tuesday and hid the empty bottle. Cause I didn't want my husband to say anything. He doesn't drink just by choice. And my dad got sober when I was 18. So I was familiar with what a high bottom alcoholic looks like or functioning alcoholic as they call it. But at the same time, I hadn't had any DUIs. Um, I wasn't hiding booze around the house. Like I had all this criteria for what a real alcoholic looks like or even a problem drinker. And that was not me. So I was looking for all these ways that I, I didn't have a problem, but there's, there's an old Chinese proverb that I read that says, um, if you don't change your path, you're going to keep going in the direction you're headed or, or something like that. And I read that one day and I was like, oh my God, like I knew where I was headed. I knew that if I didn't address this, my drinking, the progression that had happened, and I was also doing research, you know, Googling and, and for women and the science behind it is still a little unclear, but our, our progression into problem drinking and into alcoholism is faster than men. And the, the, the theory is, is that it's because we um, process sugar differently so I knew exactly where, all that's to say, I knew where it was headed and I had a choice. I'm like, do I want to see where this is going? Like just to test it <laughs> and possibly my marriage would fall apart. I would totally ruin my reputation by making some mistake. You know, the, the, 
list was long of bad things that could happen or do I want to try and quit and try and get sober and admit that this was bigger than me? And that place, like that internal admission was hell because to be in that place where you can't unsee what you already have seen and you're alone in it, I felt like such a hypocrite, you know, cause I was a brand new life coach and I knew that I had to quit and I was really angry about it. Like I loved alcohol. I was, I've always been the fun one and I was even more fun <laughs> drinking. And when it was getting to the point where it was like, I couldn't trust myself to not like try to make out with somebody's husband, like at a, at a Christmas party or like show everybody my boobs. And it's just like when you're 36, it's like not as fun anymore. <laughs> And I was desperately trying to get back to that fun place, you know, pining for those days when I was 22 and in Vegas with my girlfriends. And that's not what my life looked like. It looked like drinking an entire bottle of two buck Chuck on a Thursday, you know, like, and, and rushing through bedtime with my kids and pouring wine and empty diet Coke cans, like at three o'clock in the afternoon to go outside and play with them. Cause I could not bear my life sober. It got to that point. And so I admitted it to one of my girlfriends who had like 10 years of sobriety. She's also a life coach. And I expected her to like, you know, just be like, you're what? And she didn't. And she was like, okay. So almost like surprisingly nonchalant about it, supportive, but not as judgy as I made up she would be. And her, her homework really was quit for 30 days and see what happens. It's like, it was such a, it was such a life coaching thing move. You know, we don't give assignments necessarily for the sake of the assignment. The assignment is like, what's going to happen during the whole process. Like that's where a lot of the learning happens. I made it six days, white knuckled every single day, was so pissed off, drank after six days and realized, okay, this is truly a problem. So it wasn't even the quantity that I was drinking. It was what was going on mentally and emotionally for me. So I quit. And for me, Alcoholics Anonymous worked. There are so many great other programs for recovery now. And I also want to say that I even hesitate when I come on podcasts and tell this story, I even hesitate to use the word alcoholic because we put so much separation in that. We put so much um, like over there, you know, sobriety has become like this wellness trend, which I am glad for. But at the same time, what I see a lot of people saying online and in person is things like, well, I don't drink, but I'm not an alcoholic. I'm like, that's like the suburban mom saying, I do pole dancing, but I'm not a stripper. And all the strippers <laughs> are like, hey, fuck off. <laughs> like, this is my job. And that's how I feel too. You know, when people are like, oh, I quit, but I don't have a problem with drinking. And I'm like, fucking good for you. But it, do you see like how it makes us like you're okay so you're better than us and yeah. i think that that is what keeps people drinking it's like just just don't you don't need to qualify why you're sober to make yourself look better than people who really truly have a problem like it doesn't matter and i i get super fired up about it because i just think that there's there's always somebody listening who really truly has a problem and it that we are so like the term alcoholic is not a term of endearment. Like it's not, it has such a label and a stigma and shame attached to it that I, I think if we could just drop that instead of making it, so it has to be anonymous. So we can't talk about, you know, we have to talk about it in church basements. I think I'm just going to say it. I think so much of Alcoholics Anonymous needs to be reformed and updated. It was created almost a hundred years ago by a group of white men. Come on. 
And it just, it's something I'm really passionate about. Obviously I'm going to stop talking and get a drink. Cause I'll just like keep going off about it. <laughs> so wait, we, what language do you want us to use around that instead of alcoholic is it addicted to alcohol? Is that a better? Problematic relationship with alcohol. Um, yeah. And you could just say like, you know, a, a challenging or difficult relationship with alcohol. I think that that's, it, it lessens the charge around it mm -hmm. so that people feel a little more comfortable talking about it. I think it's interesting too, to look at the, um, the different levels. I've always been curious. I have a lot of alcoholism in my family. So I feel like I've been watching this since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. Um, seeing the different things, like what, what's your relationship like with alcohol? If you're using it to numb, you don't want to feel that, but you only had two drinks that night, but you're using it to hide that feeling. So is that a problem? I can't be the judge of that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I think that I always ask people like do an experiment, just see what happens when you don't want to Here, here's what I always say. Cause people say things like, Oh, I'm going to have a drink just to take the edge off. Well, maybe you should be looking at the edge and, mm -hmm. and trust me, I understand what it feels like to be, you know, I'm the mother of two children. I run a company. I have a husband and a dog and still try to do all the things. I understand what it feels like to be at the end of the day, just frazzled and just fried. And for the, there are plenty of other things out there to help you that don't involve changing your entire nervous system. And I just think that if we just really looked at our edges and if we faced them, you would be astounded at how much you can actually walk through without having to put a substance in your body that completely numbs you out from. I just think it's a, it's a path that is better not – there's so much research out there now that, that tells us that how bad alcohol – it's a carcinogen. Like it's so bad for us. I was just telling my 12-year-old son in the car the other day. We were listening to NPR and I, I don't even remember what it, what they were talking about, but we were talking about alcohol. And I said to him, I said, I would rather you smoke pot than drink alcohol. And like, if, if you, if you had to choose, like, I cannot believe I'm telling my 12 year old son this. Oh, he was asking me about pot being legal in different States. That's how the conversation came up and which he's the type of child that will probably do neither. But it really is one of those things that it's, it's amazing how it's like the only drug where when someone says, I don't drink, we're surprised. and like, why? Where you wouldn't ask that. Like if someone was passing around lines of cocaine on a mirror and you passed, nobody would be like, why? Like, what's wrong with you? It's just, it's so odd when you separate yourself. Like we live in a culture that is obsessed and just worships alcohol. When you quit drinking, that's when you see it how much of our socialization and our culture revolves around al alcohol is astounding. Yeah, I see it. I see that there's so much of the culture. There's before we start recording, I was telling you that there's a lot of triathlon shirts that are like race now, beer later or wine later or whatever, mimosa later. Um, there's so like the language around catching up with friends is let's go grab a drink. Mm -hmm. It's always because, because, to have a conversation is so uncomfortable sober. Like I don't, it's, it's endlessly frustrating to me, you know, someone who's been sober for eight years, but I just, I think that 
the profits <laughs> that involve alcohol are so great. And it's just, it's marketable. It's marketable and it's been marketed as a fun thing to do that is necessary to have connection with people and it's not. And like, as I was telling you, I feel like it undermines people's intelligence and also for women, especially, and I, I, I say this partly because I am a woman and I experience the world as a woman, we are marketed to differently than men. And not that, I mean, men have their own stuff to deal with in terms of how alcohol is marketed to them, but in terms of especially like the mommy wine culture, that's what I get pretty ferocious about. Because I, I do, I think that there's people who are making a shit ton of money banking on women getting drunk and being small and being absent from their lives. And that's what I have a problem with. And what's mm. so interesting is the pushback that I get when women, especially mothers are like, but it's so hard to be a mom. I just want to have some wine once in a while. It's like, I'm not trying to take away your wine. Just calm down. It's like, what I'm mad at are these companies, these corporations who are making so much money off of women being absent from their lives. Like that's what I can't stand. Yeah. What if women start being present in their lives? You can do life without alcohol. You can do, like I walked through a autism diagnosis with my first child and walking through the death of my father sober was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Like I drank through my divorce. I did. It was, I couldn't, I felt like I, I cannot bear this type of grief. Therefore I have to drink most every day in order to get through it. And when my dad died, cool, I'll tell you what, I thought about drinking. I had to call friends to keep myself accountable to not drink because like there was a moment where have you seen that show The House on Haunted Hill or on Hill House? What no, I know what you're talking about. You know about, what I'm talking about. Okay. So for anybody who's seen it, there's a there's a scene that hit me so hard. One of the characters can um she has this superpower where she can put her hands on people and feel and see really difficult traumatic things that have happened to them. And there's one and it's her dead sister is in the morgue. She's also a mortician and she always wears gloves, but she takes her gloves off and puts her hands on her sister and she sees the scene where her sister committed suicide. And she and she pulls back and and takes a few steps back and she screams so loud and she puts her hands over her face and like falls to the ground. And we saw that. And I told my husband, I did that in the kitchen one day after I came home after my dad died. And he was like, I like scared for me. And like, and the reason I tell that story is because I don't think that I would have done that drinking. Like I would have pushed it down and pushed it down and pushed it down so far that that could have never come out because I was so afraid of that fierce of emotions. To me, that was opening Pandora's box. And if I open that up, I don't know if I'm ever going to stop crying. And yeah, there was a moment where I was like unloading the dishwasher and I just was overcome with this like tsunami of grief. And I just like screamed and like fell to the ground. And I just, and I thought to myself, I cannot bear this. This grief is going to kill me. And what I would give for a bottle of wine right now, not just a glass. My thought was what I would give for an entire bottle. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I, and I went through the whole thing. I could go to the liquor store, get a bottle of Merlot, come home, drink it, probably be okay to like go pick up my kids from school. Like I went through the whole thing and I saw my phone up on the counter 
and thought to myself, if I don't call someone or text someone, this could end very badly. And I, and I made it through and luckily I have a lot of tools and, and people who, who will support me through it. But walking through that type of grief sober was one of the most powerful things I've ever done because I was like, oh my God, I was made for times like this. I am that resilient. You know, people say, especially when I went through my divorce, they're like, I don't know how you did it. I was actually listening to an interview with Monica Lewinsky and, and the interviewer asked her like, I don't like how, I don't know. I, I can't imagine. I, I hate that. That, that sentence, I can't imagine. And she's like, you could, like you, you can, but no one wants to imagine it because we don't trust ourselves enough that we can make it through the hardest of times. So that moment, resilience, I think of resilience is getting back up. So yep. that moment you're unloading the dishwasher, you're, you're sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. How did you actually get yourself up, like off the floor? I did it for a while, you know, like I sat there just like on my hands and knees, just crying so hard, like the, the crying so hard where you can't breathe. And also understanding like this, because before I would have been so overwhelmed and the thoughts would have been, I cannot make it through this. Why is this happening to me? But now it's, it's those thoughts. And also I just need to get this out. Like I need to purge all of this, all of this crying, all of these tears, all of this sweat. And I need to lean on people. Like that's really what I have done. And to have people witness me in that type of grief has also been one of the most difficult things that I've done because I was always the strong one. I held everything in and I held it all together and I walked through, you know, fire and people were always like, I wrote a chapter about that in uh, my second book and how it's a defense mechanism that we use, like being strong. And I think strength will get you through things. And at the same time, you cannot do it alone. So letting people watch me through that grief was one of the most vulnerable. Like I'd rather get up on stage and like do a keynote for 20,000 people than have someone watch me, you know, just unravel in front of them and not try to make them comfortable in the process. Cause I've done that too, where I'm like, um, it's a, a, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to be okay. You know, wave in my face, like, and then making a joke about it, like trying to make that other person comfortable. And, and, you know, when people would ask me like, are you okay? I would say, no, I'm not. I'm not okay today. I'm not okay right now in this moment. So that was, that was hard also in my marriage because my husband had never seen me and he'd watch me birth two babies, but to watch me lose a parent, there were moments where he was like, he had to call. I told him, I'm like, call Amy. Cause, my, <laughs> cause he was like, cause I'm usually the one that's sort of coaching him through like what I need. Cause we communicate really well that, that way. I, I did not have the patience nor the compassion <laughs> to coach him through it. I'm like, you need to go and figure out what to do, but it ended up bringing us closer and he's much better about about really for him too, it's, it's knowing that he doesn't have to fix it, that he just needs to sit next to me. Mm. That sounds like a massive up-leveling through grief. Yeah. It kicked my ass up and down the street. Like it really did. And I had also never lost anyone in my life. Like my cat got hit by a car when I was in high school and that was about it. It was never close to my grandparents who passed away. And I just was lucky enough to make it through 41 years at the time and never lose anyone. So, and it was quick too. He got diagnosed 
and he was dead. Let's see. That was like, it was like the last week of September and he was dead on October 16th. And I was also there with him when he died. My siblings decided I, I have two older half siblings. I didn't grow up with them, but they decided that they had said their goodbyes to him and they were at peace with it and they were going to stay in their respective homes. And my stepmother had left for the evening and he was in hospice. We knew he probably wouldn't make it another 24 hours. And yeah, I mean, it was within a few hours and he died. And I would like to say it was really peaceful. And like I got in bed with him and because I've heard stories like that. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. It was not that way. Like I panicked when he stopped breathing. and was like calling the nurse. Like, and, and I knew what was coming. I knew what was happening. I just thought they could, I, I didn't know what to do. And, and I remember thinking to myself, this feels like a very adult situation right now that I don't feel prepared for. Like I yeah. immediately went back into that childlike state of not knowing what to do and wanting some kind of positive outcome to this and knowing that there wasn't one. And I would just paced the room and they were asking me questions like, do you want to stay here with them for a while? And I was like, uh, is that what most people do? Like, <laughs> Is there a manual? Yeah. Can someone give me again? Where are the grown-ups? And then on her, and I said yes. And then on her way out, she said, "Do you want me to close the door?" And I remember staring at her, thinking, "No, I want to not be here right now. I want my dad not to be dead." And I, I couldn't even answer the simple question of, "Do you want us to close the door?" And then I just paced the room, like I didn't. It was, um, it was just. I, I, and I, I look back on it and I, you know, I've had moments where I'm really angry at my siblings for not being there. And I'm like, oh, good for you. You know, that you, <laughs> thanks for leaving me there to do all of the, the hard, heavy lifting, but it ended up being, I think the best thing. Um, and I said all the things that I wanted to say and yeah, I didn't mean to go off, off on this long tangent, but just t- grief. No, but once again, the universe is super sassy. Right. Gave you what you needed for a massive growth spurt. You probably wouldn't have had if your siblings had been there. No, it would have been different. And, you know, I probably would have, especially with my brother, well, actually with both of them, like trying to, I'm the youngest, trying to, you know, for anyone that has siblings, like you find yourself, like when you go home for Christmas or whatever, when you're in those moments, everybody reverts back to their role that we all had like, our whole lives. And being the youngest by a, by a long stretch, I've always felt like I've been treated like the baby and that has not changed. And so I do feel like it would have been a much different situation had they them been there. Even if my stepmom would have been there, it would have been different. And so I, I think it turned out perfectly as it would have. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for letting me go on and on. I haven't talked about it in a long time and um, I miss him still every, every day. Right. And, and now you're playing tennis kind of with him. I totally do. Like I hear him when I make a bad shot. I, he was always really great to me. He wasn't like a jerk coach or anything, but I hear him correcting me and telling me what I did wrong. Sometimes I don't know, but I would say 75% of the time, I know exactly what I did wrong. And I hear him tell me, and we were just laughing about it this morning. Um, because you know, the, our, our coach, his name's Kevin. He was telling my doubles partner to come forward at the net and stay. 
And I said, she needs to commit. And he goes, what? And I'm like, that's what my dad always used to say. He used to yell it like commit to the net instead of like coming forward and then going back to, to the baseline, like commit to the net. And so there's all these like little things that, um, that I remember that he says. So maybe probably another reason that I love the court. Yeah, absolutely. What a like magical place to connect with your dad. Yeah, it is. Thank you. Oh, you're such a gift, Andrea. I'm so grateful for this time with you. Oh, thank you. It's been so fun. Thank you for letting me talk so much. <laughs> I'm going to I love talking about myself. So ask me a question. I'm going to give you a long ass answer. <laughs> I would love to keep going, but we got to wrap this up. So where can people hear you talk, read your words, work with you? Anything else? All Just those things. All the things, please. Probably the best, well, best place always is yourkickasslife.com. I have a podcast. We have over 300 episodes same of the same name, Your Kick-Ass Life, and where I do all kinds of different things on there. And um, Instagram is my favorite place to hang out. Same name, same handle. Playground. Yeah. That's what Instagram fun. is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners. I'm always very, very aware of how valuable people's time is and the fact that they have spent it with us today. Mm -hmm. I'm just honored and grateful for their time. Time is more valuable than money to me. So thank you listeners for hanging in there with us. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.